Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. Before we begin tonight's discussion, we'd like to take a moment to express our extreme sadness at the sudden passing of our law school dean, Brownie Lewis, who died unexpectedly on Thursday, June 2nd. Dean Lewis joined the NCCU Law family as its dean in the spring of 2020, just as the global pandemic was causing us all to pivot to remote working, teaching, and learning. Dean Lewis brought passion and enthusiasm to her role as dean, and her unexpected passing is a loss to our institution. We offer our condolences to Dean Lewis's loving family, her many friends, and the entire NCCU Law community. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the landmark legislation which prohibited sex discrimination or sex-based discrimination in federally funded schools and education programs. Title IX of the Education Amendments Act was signed into law on June 23, 1972. It's a relatively short statute and provides that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. While Title IX is most often associated with female student sports, the law has much broader application. Title IX has increased women's access to higher education, increased access to educational athletics and extracurricular activities. Title IX also requires proper procedures related to sexual harassment and sexual violence investigations and adjudications at educational institutions. On tonight's show, we're gonna talk about the history and impact of Title IX. Joining us for this discussion is Sierra Joyner, who is the Title IX Coordinator at North Carolina Central University. Sierra, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And we should mention that you are the younger sister of one of our colleagues here at the law school in the law library, Zanata Joyner. And we think the world of Zanata. And so we welcome you um, and are delighted we have an opportunity to talk with you as well. So before we get into the details of Title IX, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming the Title IX coordinator at NCCU? Definitely. Um, it's very interesting. Um, I tell people all the time when people ask me what I do, 
I always hesitate because it's really interesting to explain what this is and I'm excited for us to get into it. But I come from a family of educators. My father worked in higher education. My sister works in higher education. So I started my journey in higher education, in student affairs. And then I got a love of policy and started working in compliance and student discipline. Um, and this was around the time we can talk about 2013, there was new regulation. We call it the Dear Colleague Letter from the Department of Education, which gave us some really specific guidelines about how institutions were responding to incidents of Title IX. So I was in the field at that time, writing policy for the university I was working for, and it just happened, right? I just went from conduct into the Title IX space. I am a certified victims advocate in the state of Florida, and I plan to get trained here. Um, so just supporting, and initially Title IX is a lot of student support, but as you mentioned, it keeps ever changing. Um, so that's how I got into it. And I really enjoy policy. I love reading. Um, my background is not legal, um, but I have a love for the law and I have love for compliance and policy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned the um, Dear Colleague letter that came out during the Obama's administration. And so, and we'll definitely have an opportunity to talk about that and the evolution of the law. Can you share your thoughts on, um, as I mentioned in the opening, uh, the law was, Title IX was signed into law in 1972. Can you share with our audience why there was even a need for Title IX in the first place? Right. I think when we look back on history in general, right, and I think we're at a, such a great moment now because we're seeing things still happening. But in 1972, the landmark case was the United States versus Virginia. And the case was, was the Supreme Court decided that one, one quote I love that the Supreme Court stated that our nation has a long and unfortunate history of sex discrimination. And the United States versus Virginia was specifically because a military institution was only enrolling male students, right? And we could say, well, why need women to have access to education? So something interesting you mentioned is everyone goes back to athletics because that's what really got popular. But it started with just access to education discrimination that existed here in America. And then it has expanded to include access to financial aid, scholarships, student services, counseling. So the policy has had to be ever changing from its creation because the reality is specifically when we look at the education system, it wasn't built for women or people of color or many other marginalized groups to be involved. And so this law then provides that opportunity for equal equitable access to education. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you mentioned, you know, in addition to athletics, athletics was um, really what folks kind of uh, focused on because at the time in 1972, even though you had athletics involving male students, very few kind of athletic programs that involved um, uh, women, right? Young, young women, uh, college-age women. And so we saw that uh, expanding and exploding, which which has been really um, beneficial because when we think about um, the benefits that one receives from engaging in organized sports, that leads into kind of being exposed to leadership, just being exposed to developing relationships. And so that can be certainly long lasting. Um, you mentioned compliance. And can you talk about the role that um, 
schools have to play when it comes to complying with Title IX? Like, why is that such an important component of schools doing what they need to do under the law? Mm -hmm. So I I want to be completely transparent. In 1972, while we had this landmark case in Title IX was now policies, there wasn't much guidance. And I think it's twofold. There wasn't much guidance and schools didn't really know how to respond, right? So we've had to continue to get additional guidance from the federal government to be in compliance. The importance of now of being in compliance is that there are penalties, financial, large financial penalties if we are not being compliant. But a lot of that stems from the fact that while this passed, while this law was put in place, institutions still weren't doing everything they could to create an equitable space for people of people to have access regardless of their gender. So as new policies come out, we are required to make sure that we are following all of the federal regulations. Um, we, I sit on a lot of webinars. I read a lot. The, the most recent policy, the preamble, was extremely long. And um, there's been lots of fact sheets that have come out and lots of colleagues trying to make sure we all are truly understanding the policy and being in compliance. But I also love, I, what I, when I talk to my supervisor and when I talk to other people, I tell them the importance of, for me, staying in compliance is really reminding myself of why this law is in place, right? And sometimes I think you have to not get lost in all of the federal guidance and make sure that you're just supporting our students. And now it expands to faculty and staff, right? But making sure we're creating those equitable spaces is how you can ensure that you are in compliance. One thing that we've seen in some cases of institutions is usually when institutions show good faith, um, when they are when lawsuits occur, the 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 law is on their side because the institution is showing that they tried their best to be in compliance and create those spaces that are equitable. Let me kind of take us back a, a little bit to, to basics. Uh, for some time now, looking at the uh, data, mm-hmm. um, population data in particular, uh, has uh, has shown that uh, women are uh, the uh, majority. Uh, in this country and have been the majority in this uh, country for some time now. And I know about racial discrimination when you're dealing with minorities. Why is there such animus directed against women uh, in uh, in this country when women are the majority and are present in just about every household uh, in, uh, in in the country? So just what has the problem been that now we have to have a special law for women who are the majority. That, I mean, I think that we could hear, we all would probably have our own opinions about it, but I think I go back to what the Supreme Court said, right? We have an unfortunate history here in America of sex discrimination, right? Um, I'm, I always think, <clears throat> we always think about the women's suffrage movement, right? Women getting the right to vote. So many things which are the foundation of our country did not, no one was including women in that. And so we're on an uphill batter, battle to make sure that we're getting equal access. I do like to make sure that people are clear, and we'll, I'd love to talk about this, is while Title IX initially was for women, as it has expanded, it's also making sure that we are not discriminating on the basis of gender. And that includes males, our non-binary 
people in our trans um, community. So making sure that we're giving equal access to all, no matter the gender or gender identity. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to read the um, actual language of the statute, which is very broad. It doesn't mention sports. It doesn't mention, um, you know, women. It is very broad. And so that raises this question of, you know, when we're talking about discrimination on this on the basis of uh, sex, when we're thinking about sex discrimination, and as you noted, that encompasses a lot. Can you expand a little bit more on what sex discrimination means under the statute? So sex discrimination means the basis of it is that we are not to discriminate on the basis of sex, right, with the policy. I want to, I'm always really clear with people that they don't give us a lot of guidelines and how we then, those of us who do the Title IX work, we define it as some specific things. And I'm going to, this is, this is interesting, some specific things that came out of our most recent Um, under the Trump administration, as you mentioned, the Obama administration, the Trump administration did give us additional clear guidelines of what discrimination is. And one of those things it says is that what is happening to someone has has to be severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, that it denies the person equal access to an education program. And I, I, I hone on to that because whenever I get a case, that is, that is what I have to look at. Is this behavior severe? And what we also say, would a reasonable person consider this, this behavior that is occurring to them or, or what is occurring to be severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it denies equal access to education? So that can be sexual harassment, um, quid pro quo harassment, inappropriate touching. It can be sexual assault, which the FBI defines as rape. Um, However slight, it can be stalking, which can be in person or it can be virtual. Um, It can be dating and domestic violence or any intimate partner violence. And we've had new guidelines out of the Biden administration. We're waiting for them to, um, well, then we talk about that, give us our new federal guidance. But they immediately gave us guidance on what that meant for our transgender students, equal access to laboratories and bathrooms and spaces, as well as our pregnant and early parenting students. Um, we weren't given too much guideline on what that means, but I, I always go back to that, making sure that that person has access to everything and we're not doing anything to create an environment where they where their access is denied, right? Not making their educational attainment difficult. And I do want to bring up that um, it's important to remember, too, that Title IX now impacts faculty and staff. Um, so making sure that all of our faculty staff also have equal access to their employment and to that, that experience. And cases, cases I deal with can be student on student, student on faculty staff, staff on student. Um, so keeping in mind then there's other things to consider because that when it's a faculty and staff, we have to consider, um, I have to work with human resources and some of the employment law that exists already in that space to make sure that we're following that. Well, when we look at the, the general uh, proposition, uh, it would appear that at the university level that uh, equal access or adequate access is pretty uh, pretty much satisfied, particularly at uh, HBCU. And I use uh, North Carolina Central as an example uh, where there is a, uh, an overpopulation of uh, women on the, uh, and on the campus. And that kind of mirrors uh, every other HBCU uh, in the uh, in the country, so can we attribute 
that overpopulation in that sense uh, to uh, Title IX? Or was that something that was uh, naturally occurring? I would have to say it was, I think it was something that was naturally occurring, right? As we are advancing as a society, we're opening up, right? Where we've opened our doors. And, and in that, I think you have these laws combined with just the transformation of our society and the equal access to education. Yeah, I, I see that uh, we're at a, a great point. And uh, so, I mean, this is a very interesting conversation, a needed discussion. Uh, that uh, we must have uh, on a regular basis. And even though it looks as if uh, Central is uh, doing well on the uh, our gender, gender uh, equality uh, issues as our HBCUs, there are still some troubling signs uh, with respect to uh, Title IX. We are talking with uh, Ms. Sierra Joyner, uh, who is the uh, Title IX coordinator for uh, NCCU as we talk about requirements of uh, Title IX. We have to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this discussion. Uh, so we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion with uh, Sierra Joyner, who is the uh, Title IX coordinator at uh, North Carolina Central University. And we are talking about uh, the, uh, the legal requirements around Title IX. And uh, that was a landmark 1972 uh, enactment uh, by uh, Congress, uh, which was designed to ensure equal access uh, was not denied to people based on their uh, their sex. And there's seemingly a distinction that is being fought out and trying to be defined as it relates to sex and gender and uh, just what the uh, scope of uh, Title IX uh, is. Uh, I just read a, a recent <clears throat> report from uh, USA Today uh, where they looked at 
uh, Title IX as it applies to athletics. And that's the big uh, enchilada here in this uh, Title IX uh, framework. And uh, they declared that with respect to athletics, that Title IX has been a failure, that it has not uh, uh, met the promise uh, that existed. And if you look at institutions around uh, the country today, uh, roughly 90% of them are out of compliance with uh, the uh, Title IX uh, mandate. And I know that we have an uh, active athletic program here at uh, North Carolina Central uh, University, and there are a lot of women engaged in a number of activities. But can you kind of talk about what is the problem as it relates to uh, athletics? Uh, we, we, you said earlier that we have an overpopulation uh, on the in the general uh, student body. Uh, why is there this gap as it relates to uh, athletics? I'm so happy you mentioned this because, because it's 50 years, so much is coming out. ESPN has some amazing documentaries talking about what has happened and specifically in the athletic space. I do want to say here at Central, we're very lucky. I work with Kendra Green in our athletic department. She assists with their compliance. The NCAA has instituted a lot of things that we have to do. So coupled with the federal regulations, NCAA compliance is pretty strong. But I think a big part of it does rely on money, right? Universities really saw this during the pandemic, um, that because universities weren't able to have in-person athletics, and especially thinking, we're thinking about our Big Ten schools and the schools in those bigger conferences, and you also think about those large teams. So what I have found in my time in higher ed is that because a lot of male sports carries a lot of people, so I think always about a football team. I'm a big football fan, so this isn't to match on athletics in any way. The football team has a lot of players on it. And what Title IX would say is then, if you have 50 players on the football team, you have to have 50 women in athletics. Well, I'm actually, I was a college athlete. I played tennis. College tennis teams are pretty small. And what happens is a lot of female sports don't, don't have that many players. So then you have to find the funds to afford multiple different teams to give women access and institutions then you have to find the athletes right and while we um professor dawson said earlier we are seeing more women since title nine entering in k-12 entering athletics we still aren't seeing those numbers in the collegiate space and we aren't seeing universities providing those spaces in the collegiate space for athletics but i would look at even if we look outside of institute outside of the institution we think about the recent issues that the soccer leagues have had, right? We know that the U.S. women's soccer team has won more. We saw that they weren't getting paid equitably. They weren't getting coverage as the male soccer team. And luckily, there's been some new um, things that have passed to give them that equal access. But I think that's a clear example is similar to what we're experiencing in higher education. And I'd imagine a little bit in K-12 as well. Mm -hmm. Which raises the the point that you made, which is the that good faith uh, effort that schools can demonstrate, and and in some ways you wonder if that is um, kind of like a double edged sword. So so on mm. the one hand, like you want to encourage schools to be forthright in their reporting, to know that if they are giving that good faith effort, but are we also seeing that being used though in a way that kind of undercuts the goals of the program? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, how a school would kind of demonstrate this good faith effort? And for those who are concerned about the lack of progress that's being made or, or that progress is not being made as um, quickly as we would like, how advocacy on, on the um, end of those that are the beneficiary of Title IX can go about ensuring that schools do come into compliance. Right. It's, it's where we sit here at Central and just me ethically, you have to report properly, right? And I think that that goes to good faith. Like you said, if you're reporting the information accurately, it doesn't mean you're doing it perfectly, but you're trying and you have to report that information. A lot of institutions we here at Central had to make some difficult decisions. So we had to get rid of a males team um, this past year because our numbers weren't appropriate. Um, And you have to think when you get rid of a team, it's not just getting rid of that team. You have to think about those players that are on that team, scholarships that may be lost, the coaches, alumni support, right? So I think a big piece of this is education. We have to educate our community and that includes our alumni about Title IX, what we're required to do and why we're required to do some of those things. Um, So I think that when you're educating the community, you can prevent some of that backlash because I think that that's a large concern, right? We want our we want our image. We want people to say, look at Central or look at whatever institution we're at and people to say that they're doing things right. They're, they're trying to support students. Um, but I think you get that from honesty, but you also get it from education. I don't think it's okay. I don't think we should hide from the reasons we're doing things. And I when I looked at when I look at some of the things that are coming out, that's why I mentioned those big institutions because they have a lot more pressure on them. Um, when specifically it comes to their huge athletic programs. Prior to me working at um, Central, I worked at University of Maryland College Park. So they're um, in the Big Ten, and I really got to see firsthand at those big institutions. But I would say even at Central, we have a lot of pressure as well because of the amazing alumni support that we have. And so people understanding what we have to do to make sure we're in compliance, to make sure that we are being equitable, to make sure we're opening it up to all who want to participate, but um, but also showing that good faith effort. Well, you know, in, in that regard, is is there the uh, demand uh, for access, uh, which is a part of uh, Title IX, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, you, you want to accommodate a, a legitimate demand on the part of the uh, student body? But if there isn't that demand uh, that exists such that parity uh, is uh, present or even possible, how does that factor into the, uh, the, the evaluation and the, and, and, and the explanation that you have to provide uh, to show our compliance with uh, Title IX? Right, so we have to, so I know with the NCAA, the things that they have to submit, they have to give rationale for those decisions, right? And making sure that any decisions we make are understood by those federal guidelines. One thing to mention too, though, we are given some time to meet the, to be in compliance. And I think that's one thing like that maybe people on the outside don't recognize. When things, when, when we are told as an institution to follow something, we don't have to act immediately. They recognize that there's multiple key players involved. And so to make sure you're in compliance, you have to, it might take some time. And you're given that as long as you're actively showing you're working towards it. Now, what is the, 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 the financial impact of uh, getting rid of a team 
because you just talked about uh, Central, and, and Central is not the only one, because many schools have had to go through uh, that, uh, that, uh, that same uh, dilemma. Uh, so, but what is the cost of getting rid of a, uh, of, of a team in terms of the dollars uh, that, we're, that we're looking at? Right, and I want to be transparent in this space as a, a lover of athletics. We do have to be honest that some of our teams generate more revenue for us as an institution than some of our other teams. It's not to say that they're not all valuable and they're not all doing great things, but we have to consider that, that what are, what are we able, how is it able to support the institution? Um, I always remind people in the institution, we're just like any other business, right? We have money that we need to we, need, we have revenue we need to obtain. We have money we need to put out. We put a lot of money out and we have a lot of things we need to do. So it definitely has a direct impact when you're considering what team you're going to get rid of. And you have to look at that financial impact. I mentioned football and I, I hate to always get on football, but because football carries such a large roster, they oftentimes carry a larger coaching staff. Um, you're, then you're looking at assistant coaches. You're looking at um some of the people who are helping with health and conditioning, right? They're going to require more. So that team is going to put more money out and you have to see, are they bringing in the same amount of money? Just to be honest that some of your teams are not going to be large revenue streams for the institution. Um, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have those because what we've discussed in this space is that that's giving people access to those things, right? Giving people the ability to demonstrate their talents um, as we look at sports. I always look at myself as someone who plays tennis which I always tell people I'm about the same age as Venus and Serena. So it really wasn't, you saw a lot of black women in at that time, right? And so it wasn't something that people were running. It was, this is before Naomi Osaka and Coco and tennis is really black girl magic, right? And so there wasn't a lot of people coming to games and watching. And I know a lot of people are like, you play tennis? And I remember looking at HBCUs and something also to mention is, and this is another part, but a lot of HBCUs, us included, are some of our teams, the makeup of it is not, are, is, are not our black students. We have to go out and recruit students of other identities because to find people who play that sport. We're a welcoming institution. Central's gonna welcome in anyone who wants to come through our doors, but those are things to consider. Um, also when you're looking at finances because you wanna support and provide scholarships when able, but you're not always able to do that. So, so it's, a, it's a really tricky space that we're in. Um, and I, but I think that, I think from webinars I sit on and information I get from the NCAA, I think they understand what universities are working with. If you look at our budgets, I think the athletic department understands what they're trying to do. And we're just trying to make sure that we're staying afloat, obviously financially, but we're also supporting all of our students and student athletes. Now you mentioned making sure that the community and the alumni are educated and of course, you know, the coaches and the, the educational community. And so as the Title IX coordinator, uh, you of course are our resident expert, which is evident here. Um, can you talk about your role? Like what does the Title IX coordinator do? And I'm assuming that all educational institutions need to have a point person like you who is able to educate those educational institutional employees and then also the greater community as well. So Title IX, like you said, it's required that every institution, K-12 and higher education, has someone designated to Title IX in gender-based discrimination. Um, we have a lot of guidelines of what that looks like for your team, but you get some 
allowance to do what works best for your community, right? When you're doing, when you're in this space. But as a Title IX coordinator, it is my responsibility that once I have what the government has defined as actual knowledge of any gender-based discrimination, I am required to act. One thing that keeps us in Title IX up all night is because the government changes and they don't always give a play-by-play -play of what that looks like. Um, but the way we have interpreted it here at Central and how most people have interpreted it is that to act is to make contact to the person who has been discriminated against, to provide supportive measures. Um, supportive measures on the institution can vary. Um, like I said, number two, Title IX is for faculty, staff, and students. Um, so that can be class accommodations, residential accommodations, that can be working with the disability office, that can be working with human resources and things like that making sure we're making that person feel comfortable. Now, the other part of it is where it gets very legal and complex, a little more complex. The supportive measures are just what we're doing just to help the faculty, staff, or student, is that oftentimes we have to do full investigations. Specifically, when we're looking at incidents of gender-based discrimination, which are sexual violence. Um, we're gonna do a full investigation and that's gonna require interviews, witness statements, a full investigative report, and then we also have a disciplinary proceeding that we use with outside entities to review the information to find out if, in fact, a violation did occur, and if it did, what would be the appropriate remedy or discipline. Um, that process can take a while. It has to be done appropriately. Um, we're looking at credibility. We're looking at fact-finding. Um, we're making sure that we are being unbiased, which can be which can be difficult at a small institution because a lot of people know everyone. And so making sure that we're providing also through the entire process, everyone gets equal access. So when I'm doing an investigation, all parties involved get the same information at the same time so that they know what to expect. They also can bring attorneys, support people. We provide advocates, counseling. Um, so that's a little bit of what Title IX is required to do. And I also... I find it really interesting, Title IX here in North Carolina, our state has a large history with Title IX, specifically in the higher education space. We look back many years ago at the Duke lacrosse case that people might remember. Um, and that was, that was a case where we were looking at sexual violence and how that impacts the institution. Um, there's a great documentary called The Hunting Ground, which I would recommend people to watch. And it is based on two students at UNC Chapel Hill who found that incidents were happening to them and the universities weren't acting. They started reaching out to other students. This is the internet is you know easy to reach out. And they found at many institutions, universities weren't acting. It wasn't just here in North Carolina, it was at many other states. And so it has really put us as 1009 coordinators on notice to make sure we're doing something. Um, we do give though, whoever's making the report a lot of power to decide what we're doing and how they feel about it. We wanna make sure whatever we're doing is not causing them additional trauma um, because we are looking, we are dealing with incidents that involve a lot of trauma attached to them, a lot of stigma. Um, and so it can be really complex. So making sure that they have the power to decide, but there are times when we as an institution have to act even if the person doesn't want us to. Um, I always say one of my biggest goals is to make sure I'm keeping our campus safe. Um, we all have, we all should be able to come and work and learn in a safe environment. And I'm a part of ensuring that that happens. What, what constitutes uh, sexual violence? How broadly <laughs> is that uh, defined? And then where it exists, what is it that the university uh, can do 
uh, about it says the uh, the university is not a prosecutorial uh, agency and not associated with the court system. And you bring up such a good point because a lot of the cases I get are they're asking for us to do things here at the institution, but they also may be working through the criminal process. And those processes are completely different. We are an educational process. We are not a criminal process. And while there's a lot of language that's similar, it's very different. And the big thing I always tell people is here at the institution, the worst thing we can do is say, you can no longer be a member of our community, right? We don't take away life and liberty. That would be a criminal process. But that for many people, that's that's huge. I don't want to you know downplay that, but just say that that's what we do. When we look at sexual violence, we, are, we have given the recent administration did give us some clear guidelines of what we're looking at when we look at sexual violence, specifically sexual um, assault. They've asked us to use um, VAWA, which is the Violence Against Women Act, um, which protects women, um, the Cleary Act, which is our reported in our jurisdiction, and also the FBI standards. So we're, we're, that's including rape, fondling, incest, and statutory rape, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking. And we have to look at all of those different definitions and different federal regulations to make sure we're following it. You also brought up a good point. Um, I brought up Cleary, which is how we report um, our numbers of any incidents that are happening in or around campus. But we also have to look at our jurisdiction, right? How far reaching um, can things happen? So the most recent administration, President, not Biden, but the previous president administration really limited what our jurisdiction looked like. Um, before, if it was two students, if it was off campus, we still would act, but now they've tightened it up a little bit more and we're all at the edge of our seats um, to see what the new administration is gonna do, if they're gonna open those, that door to jurisdiction a little more or keep it um, like it is right now. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with Sierra Joyner, who is the Title IX coordinator at North Carolina Central University. And this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Title IX statute. And there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that the law does. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about Title IX, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, the Title IX coordinator for North Carolina Central University, Sierra Joyner, who is the younger sister of one of our colleagues here at the law school, Zanata Joyner. And so Sierra, you were talking about how Title IX, of course, requires that schools engage in certain procedures and requirements when it comes to sexual discrimination in the form of sexual assault or sexual violence. Um, Can you talk about the type of education that needs to take place for students who are coming into this environment? So for a lot of students, this is their first time away from home, living kind of quasi on their own, interacting with peers, not having the oversight of, of their parents. And so my guess is that there is a lot of education that needs to be done about how you interact with members of the opposite sex. Um, can you, so you, can you talk about that? So the federal guidelines does require us to train faculty, staff, and students. It doesn't give us an amount of time or who to train. Um, how, we, how I have interpreted it is I try to train as many people as I can. Um, so I'm very lucky that I get space time with um, our faculty and staff during all orientations, so all new employee orientations. And then I go around to different departments on campus to educate them because I think part of educating students is also making sure our faculty and staff are educated so they can continue that dialogue. Um, I get FaceTime with our student leaders, so like our resident assistants and the residence halls and those staff members, as well as our orientation leaders and student government. Um, and then I do get some FaceTime during orientation. I will be honest, though, it's we give students so much information, right, when they first get in that a lot of times, while we know this is important and directly correlated to their safety and their success here at the institution, it can get lost in all the different messaging that we're getting. Um, so I just tried to make sure I'm keeping that messaging out and using other platforms. I have an intern and we do some social media things to really, you know, grab the young people and to get the messaging out. And I'm so happy you said, I'm um, talked about though our students, because one thing is statistics show us is that um, for HBCUs, the, the October is usually the month with the largest number of incidents. Um, most people attribute that to homecomings um, is when we're going to see more sexual violence. For our other institutions um, that aren't HBCUs, usually it's the first 60 days of the semester is where you have the bulk of the incidents that occur. So it's so important to get time immediately in front of um, our students as soon as they arrive here at the institution. Um, and a lot of times, though, um, I have realized, though, over the last few years, because this is also a requirement in K-12, a lot of our students most recently are coming in with a little bit more knowledge about appropriate interactions with each other, um, appropriate language to use in, like the young people say, in real life, in, in the virtual space. So because we're, they're getting some of this education in their high school specifically and a little bit in the middle schools where it's allowed, they are coming in with a little more information. I'm always shocked too by how many, um, I help out, I like to help out on move-in day to meet parents. How many parents, when I say I'm a Title IX coordinator, know what it is, know what that title is, 
because I would definitely say a few five, six years ago, I don't think as many would be as familiar what that office is, the resources that are available. And it's not a fear. And I love and I really want that. I don't want people to fear my office or the work we do because we're trying to make our environment safe and making sure we're supporting students as much as possible. And you had mentioned one thing too earlier about numbers, um, because uh, we talked about Clery reporting, and so I have to report all of my numbers to the Clery office for our annual security report. But it's so important when you're looking at the numbers of institutions that if an institution reports relatively high numbers of um, sexual crimes occurring, that doesn't mean that the institution is a violent or unsafe place. I instead interpret that to mean that students know that if they report something, something will happen. Um, we know statistically most people don't report um, acts of sexual violence. So it's because they don't, they don't think they'll be believed, they don't think anyone will do anything, and they don't think there'll be any action. And my goal and hope here is that our students do what they need to do to be safe so we have less incidents, but if something happens, they know the resources that are available to them so we can support them and help them. When you're looking at uh, something like sex, sexual violence, uh, which is uh, typically, not always, but typically uh, uh, resulting from relationship uh, issues and uh, interactions that are going on that uh, morphs out into a he said, she said uh, kind of uh, scenario. Uh, what is it that uh, you do when there is a complaint uh, about that involving he said, she said, uh, to ferret out what is in fact the truth, the procedure uh, for uh, you reaching some uh, determination as an appropriate response from the administration. Mm -hmm. Whenever I get a report, I recognize I'm only getting part of what has happened. Um, and I'm very honest and clear not that I, I always tell people, this is your, this is your reality of what occurred. You're, you're, I hope you're being honest, but I need to get more information. And so when I'm talking to both parties, when we're conducting our investigations, we're doing fact finding and trying to get as much information as possible. Another big part of Title IX is I think some people want someone to be responsible. We don't we use responsible or not responsible, but most of our complainants, those people who bring incidents to us, don't always want a final resolution. They sometimes just want immediate action done, right? So I've had cases where people have said, I just don't wanna see that person again. That might not always be possible, right? In the university setting, but I can do whatever I need to do to make that possible. Um, when I'm doing an investigation, keep it in mind that both parties are going to give me different accounts, but that's actually, I do a lot of um, training and appropriately investigating and also appropriately taking information. And that's where a lot of times those witnesses are gonna come into play, um, which are very helpful. We also look to something called an outcry witness. That's a person that a complainant will tell immediately the incident because usually that person is gonna be able to give you the best explanation of what happened because that's the first person they told. Um, in this day and age, I have to be honest, we do have technology on our side. So there's many times where we have text messages, photos, videos. We have cameras here on campus, which we use, utilize as well. So I'm able to, to really figure out as much credibility as much as possible and make up what we, what we use, our preponderance, preponderance of evidence. So more likely than not, what occurred, right? We're not looking at beyond a reasonable doubt. We're not even looking at clear and convincing, right? More likely, based on the information, based on the facts, 
based on the credibility we've we've seen, what, what is more likely not to happen. And usually, I also always remind complainants that even if someone is found not responsible, that doesn't mean that something didn't happen. It doesn't mean that something wasn't inappropriate, and it doesn't mean that they, they didn't do it. We're also, we're, one of my favorite things is our policy, which I worked really hard to write and I edit, but I have to stick to the policy too. So when I'm looking at more likely not, did something happen? And is it a violation of our university policy? So making sure that people are very clear about that because it definitely can get a lot of she said, she said, he said, she said um, when, we're, when we're handling cases. And so without a doubt, one of the um, goals of your office is to try to ensure that these incidences don't happen, right? Can you talk about best practices that you convey to students and then also, as you've noted, um, you know, Title IX covers faculty and staff as well and best practices for faculty and staff because um, we want that if there are the unfortunate incidences that people um, can have their issues resolved or, you know, have something done about that. But we also want to make sure that we reduce these incidences from happening in the first place. I want to say we're really lucky here at Central. Our chancellor, um, because I'm a pretty direct line to our chancellor, is committed to this, creating a safe environment and making sure that our student population is aware that this is not appropriate behavior and it's not what we expect our eagles to do. So it really helps, I think, when it comes from the top down, because I am supported in many ways. Um, we have to remember, though, that one in four college women will be sexually assaulted in, at some point in time. But I also like to make sure that people are aware that one in five college men will, will be sexually assaulted while they're in school as well. So it's important to put that information out. But one key piece that people often miss is that while the numbers statistically are high, the what we would call the respondent or the perpetrator's numbers are low. So what that means is that the people who are violating this are usually doing it to multiple people. And so here at Central, what we're trying to do, and we get a report keeping that in mind and trying to stop, remedy, and prevent, right? And prevent that action from happening. So we do have interim measures we can put in place to remove people from our campus that might be creating an unsafe space. And that's really one of your best practices that you can provide, educating your student population so that reporting happens early. Oftentimes, there's a lot of things we can do to intervene before incidents get large. Um, people usually are exhibiting signs of some predatory behavior. And if that is occurring by faculty, staff, or student, if people are reporting that, we're able to intervene early um, to keep people safe to prevent that from happening. And reporting does, we say reporting is best practice because all the reports I get are not always rising to sexual violence, right? And so making sure that people are reporting and even, and then I'd say the big key is our bystander intervention. Our women's center here on campus um, does a great job educating our students about bystander intervention, but it's so important for us to make sure we're, like we say, protecting the nest, right? If we see something or hear something that's inappropriate, that someone is stepping in and they're either distracting, delegating, getting support, getting help, so we can stop these behaviors from happening. But are, are our students listening? Uh, when this uh, education is presented to them uh, at a point that they are not in crisis and they're in mm -hmm. the uh, kumbaya, uh, moment, uh, are they really hearing what it is that you're saying? 
such that uh, it prevents them or puts them in a position that they aren't uh, exposing themselves unnecessarily uh, mm -hmm. to the kinds of uh, harms that, that you find that uh, that's reported. I mean, I think we, we all are aware, the majority of the students I work with are 18 to 24. Um, their brains are still developed. Um, they're still learning appropriate interpersonal relationships. I, I, that's that's a reality. Um, we also, this is a generation where instead of saying something, they're more likely to record it and post it on YouTube or TikTok or whatever is hot this week, right? Um, I think that's why one of our key areas is to is to really train our leaders, right? Those students who have already demonstrated that they have a caring concern for our community. And I think that with training the student leaders, then you're going to get a little bit more support. But I will be honest, we unfortunately have had incidents where Students will, you'll find out about an incident and then several other students were like, oh yeah, I knew that was happening and no one has said anything. And so I, one of the other best practices goes back to an earlier comment I said, which is we want students to know that if you say something, something will be done. Because I think sometimes that's the concern. They don't believe anyone's going to do anything or believe them. So then why report? Why get involved? Um, we also know that you don't know what will happen if you get involved, right? So even as a bystander, it's important to consider, is it the safest for you to do? I also wanna um, harp on next to our students, our police department, we have um, an officer who's trained in these sensitive matters. So when students, students, faculty or staff report to the police department, you will be triaged then to that officer um, so that you're getting a higher level of care in a trauma situation, which I also think adds a really good level because sometimes our police aren't trained in these spaces and don't always respond best to our students. And we also, I mean, we could talk a lot about student and staff relationship with police officers. So making sure we're creating those healthy relationships with our officers so that they know that they'll respond. But our students, they're gonna be students. And so it's a it's an everyday education, it's an everyday reminder um, and making sure we're getting our face out there as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And kind of related to that, I, I like the, the point that you raised about um, making sure that student leaders are, are involved in making sure that the message gets out. Can you talk about the importance of student advocacy on educational institutional campuses, colleges or university campuses to ensure that the schools do what they should be doing under Title IX? I, I, while I, I fancy myself, you know, young or ish, the reality is the students are not listening, are not going to listen to me as much as they are their peers, right? And they're going to respect their peers. And I, I love that and I appreciate that. So one way that we work with student advocacy is we work with those peer groups that are, because I mentioned our orientation leaders in student government, but I also do presentations with our athletics department, our fraternity and sorority life community because we know that those are communities that incidents, these incidents are more likely to happen, but we need them to be advocates. We need them to speak up when these incidents happen. We need them to address that behavior early when they hear it happen, when they potentially see it happening um, so that they are role modeling for those other students. Um, like I said, I do have a student intern and he's worked to help me get some other students involved so that we can do some of that student outreach um, it's just not always me as the talking head giving the message. So they're getting it from the peers in a way they can digest, in a way they understand, in a way that's going to cause you know, them to make some action if, it, if they see an incident occur. Mm -hmm. 
Well, excellent. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but Sierra Joyner, we can't thank you enough for providing us with such, you know, useful information and timely information. Um, Title IX is such an important statute uh, on so many levels, which we've had an opportunity to talk about. And so thank you for all of the good work that you do and will continue to do at North Carolina Central University. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll have you back. So, Sierra Joyner is the Title IX coordinator at NCCU. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending this Sunday evening with us as we talked about the history and impact of Title IX on our educational institutions. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.